So it's pretty clear, given the news events we talked about in the first segment of the program, that five juveniles crashed a stolen car into a Columbus fire truck on Monday, sent four firefighters to the hospital. The juvenile driving the car was 12 years old. He had been arrested 11 days earlier for stealing a car, was sent home with an ankle monitor. The crimes common to these five juveniles were aggravated robbery, assault, receiving stolen property. They had ascended, despite their young age, to the minor from the minor leagues of crime into the major leagues of crime. So we have a crime problem. Oh, and by the way, they had four guns with them in the car. And we know from my conversations with Columbus police and now reporting by WSYX and by WBNS, Where's NBC4 on this? Oh, they're probably too busy gearing up for a big Pride Month celebration over there at NBC4. They're all about that. At any rate, uh, we know that guns are a big problem here in the city and that the kids who are stealing cars are often finding legally purchased guns in the glove box. And then those guns get sold to somebody on the streets. And all of a sudden, bad people have guns, and they're using them to commit various crimes and murders around the city. And we keep hearing, every time there is such an instance of this happening, Mayor Ginther stands up in front of people and talks about how unacceptable it is. It's just unacceptable. But he and the people around him continue to accept it other than to just tell us how unacceptable it is. So the dispatch today did an interesting um, accountability piece on what difference would some of the commonly voiced solutions to crimes involving guns, what fix would these solutions provide? Because, of course, Mayor Ginther never hesitant to do two things. One, tell you how unacceptable it is, and two, blame other people instead of himself for what's going on. You remember after the big shooting in the short north that caused Andrew Ginther to move cameras and lights and cancel all the police leave requests and marshal the forces into the short north to keep it safe because Andy's got all his mayoral friends coming this week for the National Conference of Mayors, you will remember that Andrew Ginther said this. We need the state and federal governments to step up and keep guns off the street. And if they don't have the courage to do that, then they at least need to get out of our way and let us do it. I'm just talking basic common sense gun safety legislation. Now, I will give the mayor fair treatment here in that he did try to outlaw, what was it, certain gun magazines in Columbus. And he was blocked from doing that by a little thing called the U.S. Constitution, cited by the Delaware County judge who said, no, you can't do that. See, Andrew Ginther has tried to provide a solution, but the solution has to be constitutional. Andrew, sorry about your luck on that. So Bethany Bruner pens the story in the dispatch. And this is kind of an interesting look at the oft-stated solutions to the thing the left always cites, which is gun violence, right? It's Gun violence. Get that term out of your vocabulary. There is no such thing as gun violence. There's violence committed with guns, but the guns are not violent. 
Leave yours in a drawer, locked up. See how violent it gets. You'll be surprised at the lack of violence. Pick it up, shoot somebody with it. All of a sudden, the gun has become violent, but you are the conduit for such violence, not the gun itself. It does not have a mind of its own. It's not operated by AI. So the interesting thing that caught my eye first in this Bethany Bruner dispatch story is that Ginther, I'm quoting here, Ginther's office declined to respond directly to a request for specific cases and anecdotes that would illustrate the needs for the measures he advocates. Now, you would think if you're going to make the case for, I don't know, red flag laws, universal background checks, bump stock bans, all that, you'd have statistics at the ready. Here's what we need. And here's why we need it, right? Because if you're going to make these proposals, you should be able to justify such proposals, particularly since they conflict with the first, with the Second Amendment. Did I say First Amendment before? My, my apologies if I did. I meant Second Amendment. Uh, so Andy Ginther doesn't have any specifics. Of course he doesn't. But he did refer Bethany Bruner to Columbus Police, who provided written answers. Smart move, Columbus Police. That way you can't be misquoted. Universal background checks. Okay. She says the dispatch asked Columbus police how many of this year's homicides where a suspect has been identified have been determined to have been committed with a firearm that was purchased legally by the suspect. Columbus police said they do not track that statistic. Now, if they don't track that statistic, don't you figure a lot of other departments don't track that statistic? Wait, go to Zach Klein. He's a wokester. He'll have that number. Uh, No. City attorney Zach Klein's office said in a statement that while the exact number is not known, it's reasonable to think there were homicides committed this year. Wait, why don't you know the number, Zach? If you're going to be a Democrat, you're going to stand up there and pound the pulpit for universal background checks. We need hard and fast numbers. You got all the crime statistics. You got all the cases. You know information we don't know. According to Zach Klein's office, the Ohio Attorney General's Bureau of Criminal Investigation, that's BCI, they're the ones who investigate all the shootings involving police officers. BCI has not uploaded thousands of disqualifying convictions into the system. So what this means is when somebody commits a gun crime, they then become disqualified to own a gun in the future. If they're wearing that scarlet letter, can't own a gun, previous felon, whatever. Remember the guy who murdered the two Westerville police officers? He was not allowed to own a gun. He had a gun from a friend. If his friend was not allowed to own a gun, but the number wasn't uploaded into the system by BCI, the guy probably passed the back. The guy would have passed a background check anyway. So they got to either figure that out, or Democrats have to stop whining about universal background checks. Wait, other people have done this work for us. Look at this. In 2019, a Boston University and Harvard University study looked at a 26-year period and found a 15% lower homicide rate in states with universal background checks for all gun purchases. Did I read that number right? 26 states, that's more than half the country. How much did universal background checks lower the homicide rate? 15%? Now, I'm all for a 15% reduction in murders. But to subject people to what is, at the very least, a debatable violation of the Second Amendment for a 
15% rate of reduction in homicides? Mm, Juice not worth that squeeze. Another study done by the University of California, Davis. Wow. Another woke cesspool doing a study. Determined, and I quote, no significant change in homicide rates with universal background checks in place between 1991 and 2000. That's a pretty big sampling size, pretty long period of time. So we've got Northeast Ivy League liberals, and we've got hanging from the trees Berkeley nut jobs saying that universal background checks based on studies a decade or in one in the Ivy League case, two and a half decades, universal background checks don't work. Universal background checks don't work. What about red flag laws? Ohio doesn't have them. 21 states do. And again, there's no real consensus of statistics on it, except that a red flag law does reduce the number of suicides. Well, that would make sense. If you have a red flag law or some family member who's worried about your sanity, your degree of being in touch with reality, managing your emotions and all that, that makes sense. But in terms of the murder numbers, doesn't make a difference. Same with bump stock bans. All these solutions by Democrats don't fix anything. You know what fixes things? So we're supposed to get a vote today on a big debt ceiling agreement between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. They uh, hammered this out, the last details of it, over the weekend on a 90-minute phone call, which I'm sure you, like me, are astounded that Joe Biden can stay awake for a 90-minute phone call. Maybe they gave him lots and lots of ice cream, probably. Sugar buzz for the president. Uh, But it's not determined that this will pass yet the house freedom caucus this dan bishop guy he like he's all up in kevin mccarthy's grill over this one and so is chip roy of texas he's not a fan of it either just because the swamp is flawed doesn't mean the average hardworking american should take it on the chin the american people now the government is 40 percent bigger than it was pre-covid let's go back to pre-covid levels of spending that's what we asked for we're not this deal doesn't do that Okay, so I'm trying to make sense of what's going on here. And some of this, I think, might be allowing the people who've built a brand as very uh, debt-conscious, people like Bishop, people like Chip Roy, people like the uh, Freedom Caucus chair, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, people like, I don't know, Jim Jordan will be part of this. I can't see Jordan undermining McCarthy because Jordan supported McCarthy for speaker. And make no mistake, if you vote against this debt ceiling deal, it's a blow to McCarthy. There are even those who would say, oh, you know, it only takes one of us to call for a vote on the speakership. Maybe we should get rid of McCarthy as speaker. Well, that's an idea you can float, but you got anybody who could get the requisite number of votes to be speaker? Probably not. So I think what this might be is that there'll be a certain number of Republicans 
who will vote no on this and be able to preserve their status as people who are virulently opposed to expanding our nation's national debt. But it won't be a hundred of them, okay? They'll lose eh, 35, 40. And then on the Democratic side, likewise, there'll be the shrieking banshees like AOC, Pramila Jayapal, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar. They'll be able to preserve their woke, anti-American bona fides by voting against this too because, you know, it, heaven forbid, forces people a small percentage of people, a teensy-weensy percentage of people, under 54, able-bodied, no dependents. <laughs> it forces them to work in order to get their free government handout. What, 20 hours a week? Ooh, don't overtax yourself. But will this pass? I think it'll pass. I think it'll pass because if it doesn't pass, it makes the Republicans look weak. And by and large, the bigger accomplishment here is to not undermine your power, minimal though it is, controlling only the House and barely that by a few votes. You don't want to cut the knees out from under what little power you have. So that's why I think this will pass. If you're a Republican, You're not always on the news. You're not always decrying the national debt. You're not always talking about fiscal responsibility and getting entitlements under control. You'll hold your nose and vote for it. Jordan will vote for it. Mike Turner will vote for it. It'll get widespread support. Then on the left, there'll be people who they don't want to make Joe Biden look bad. I mean, it's hard enough to keep Joe Biden awake for an hour and a half to hammer out a deal with Kevin McCarthy. You certainly don't want to have to ask him to do that again. So I expect there will be a decent number of Democrats who will vote. Hakeem Jeffries, the House minority leader, not nearly as good at threatening people as Nancy Pelosi. But Jeffries will come out of this looking good because far fewer Democrats will vote for this than Republicans. And so it'll look like Democrats were against it. It'll look like Republicans are for it, and Jeffries will do what Jeffries does every single time he opens his mouth, which is lie and lie and lie some more. The man is incapable of telling the truth. It might come natural to him as a Democrat. This is not a great deal, but again, what are you capable of accomplishing when you only have control of half the Congress and that by just a few votes? McCarthy is over-trumpeting and over-touting all the stuff that's in the bill. Oh, we cut spending and we're not growing the government. And blah, blah, blah. He gave Biden a $4 trillion blank check to add to the debt. And, and this is the worst part of it, he spares Democrats this fight again in advance of the 2024 presidential election. Now, can you imagine if that element of this debt ceiling were not in there? And Joe Biden had to, assuming he's still the standard bearer of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden had to approach an election in November of 2024 with a debt ceiling fight hanging over his head. He could not afford a government shutdown. He could not risk 
despite the unified support of the news media, the primary messaging entity in this country, he could not count on people holding him blameless for an impending debt ceiling problem in the fall of 2024, and you might have been able to get more concessions out of him. So I think that was a bad deal by McCarthy. Biden had to have it now, but don't give it to him so that you spare him having to have it, having to compromise more in the fall of 2024. That's my primary issue with this, is that McCarthy allowed Biden to just escape future danger. And all the things that McCarthy promises about, oh, we capped this for 10 years and this and that, not if you don't have control of the chamber. It's easy to rail against Democratic spending and blame our national debt on Democrats. The fact of the matter is Trump spent like a drunken sailor too, and so did Bush. I don't know if we elect a fiscally responsible president in 2024, which is to say Ron DeSantis, because Trump has already proved he's not, and Biden certainly isn't. But if you elected Ron DeSantis in 2024, would Ron DeSantis show the same political backbone that he has shown in Florida doing unpopular things in 2024 and enacting what we really need to get spending under control, which is entitlement reform? Because if he does... Everybody who's getting a check, whether it's SNAP benefits, whether it's unemployment benefits, whether it's Social Security, no matter what it is, everybody's going to hold him accountable when he runs again in 2028. So in terms of the hope for entitlement reform, which is what has to happen for us to get our budget under control, I don't see any chance of there being at least a serious conversation about entitlement reform until 2028. And that's only if... DeSantis gets elected in 2024 because once he got elected again, again, I know I'm making a lot of assumptions here. If he were to get elected to a second term in 2028, then he would have the opportunity to do something transformative with entitlement reform and he wouldn't have to run for re-election again. So he wouldn't really have to stay popular while he did it. 